Hello, my name is Wyatt Manor. I am a student here at King's Cross Church. You are listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Well, um, if you don't know me, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, on your way in, just by way of a quick reminder, every now and then we accumulate enough leftover stray stuff that we put it on the lost and found table up there by the doors. Uh, and so that's going to be out for a couple of weeks. Take a look at that when you're on your way out. If you see something there that you like, um, you know. Just avail yourself of it because in a couple of weeks when y'all don't take that stuff, it's going to get thrown away. And so there's like some Yeti cups up there and things. If you ever are in need of some type of drinking receptacle, there, in it, there are dozens around the church at almost any given time. And if there's one of yours that you can't find, it's probably here. I don't, they multiply like fishes and loaves at King's Cross. I don't know what that is. But um, so our first service as a church was on uh, September 11th, 2016. We celebrated communion together for the first time in service number four, and we celebrated our first baptisms, four of them, in service number six. Our first Easter service together was number 30. Service number 51 was delayed a week by Hurricane Irma in September of 2017, and a couple weeks later, in service 53, we had fun celebrating turning one year old as a faith family. We have been praying and trying to get out here onto the Canehoy Peninsula. Our first service in Philip Simmons Middle School was number 61. Number 67 got bumped a week by, if you can believe it, of all things, snow. Um, the note in my little spreadsheet just is grayed out and it says snowpocalypse. Um, so some of y'all remember we, we had like a foot of snow. We began casting vision for this building in service number 99. And just a few weeks later, Hurricane Florence delayed number 102 by a week. We commissioned our first mission team that Pastor Josh took down to Panama at the end of service number 140. And in the fall of 2019, number 150 was the first one in this building. Number 158 kind of came and went without too much uh, notice being paid, but that was the service where we turned three, and we don't take that for granted because about 75% of church plants fail in the first three years, and so uh, we didn't take that for granted. Having this building allowed us to gather for our first candlelight evening uh, Christmas Eve service, that was number 189. What we didn't know when we gathered for number 211 was that the world was about to shut down and the next 20 services would wind up being online because of COVID, but we were back in person for number 232. We held a joint Easter service out on the field with three other churches that are up here, our neighbors on the Canehoy Peninsula. That was 301. And the Sunday that we turned five and had a big cake and some of us got sunburned out in the parking lot, that was 346 and 347. This series that we're in called The Story, where we're looking at the overarching narrative of the Bible, we started on January 1st of this year, that was number 424, 
And our growth meant that we added a permanent second service. By the time we got to March earlier this year, that was 433 and 434. Two weeks ago, in number 495, we celebrated our 79th baptism. We had three more in the first service. We'll show you those videos a little bit later. And this morning in this service is our 500th worship service as a church family. Can we just celebrate God's faithfulness in that? Isn't that awesome? I made fun of the 9 o'clock people. They just missed it. They're 499. You know, they're almost there. But some of you might have stayed around for the first service just because so you can check that box, you know. But I was trying to think of um, some fun ways to celebrate this for like three or four months because um, I'm just like nerdy and uh, count things. My background before I was in ministry was accounting. And so a couple of people said to me this week, we were talking about like, who was counting that? I'm like, that's me. I got spreadsheets and numbers and like all kinds of stuff. This is the way my, but so we thought about getting some 500 themed little trinket of some kind to give to everybody who came and just kind of felt like not a great use of money. We talked about getting 500 donuts, um, which some of you might've liked, <laughs> but then we thought, man, that's a lot of donuts and we're going to have we're never going to eat 500 donuts. And um, we, we thought about giving uh, everybody a $5 bill and saying, here, go use it to bless somebody in some way and send the numbers. To this. And then we were going to give the 9 o'clock service $4.99, which I thought would be funny. Um, but none of that just felt right. It just uh, So there's something, though, that's been on my heart uh, since earlier in the summer. And I just want to put it out there as a challenge for us, as we are gathering to celebrate the 500th time we've worshiped together, our risen Lord. Since uh, this year's fall launch, so the Sunday after Labor Day earlier this year, we have averaged, counting adults and kids in KCK, 313 people on Sunday mornings, Um, which is not, like the average Baptist church is less than 150 people. And so if you ever say to people like, oh, yeah, I go to this little church on Clements Ferry, you actually don't. We're, we're, um, we're a fairly decent-sized church, believe it or not. But here's what I've been thinking. What if that number could be 500 by this time next year? Not for our sake. Yeah, that's all, own it. That's okay. Not, not, not for our sake. Not so we can brag about numbers. I don't really care about that. But because numbers represent people. And my thought is, what might God do if we were intentional to pray for, to share the gospel with, to just reach out and invite people to come to church with us? What I've been thinking about this week is like, what might God do in the lives of people who are close to us but far from him in the next year? What What might he do in the lives of people who are new to our city and they haven't connected yet? That they moved here and it's the number one city in the world and that's great and all these restaurants and water and then this awesome, but then like really it's just kind of life and they're lonely and they haven't found community yet? What might he do in the lives of people who are going to have a crisis in the next 12 months that they don't know is coming yet they're not going to know where to turn. And, and they need some hope in that season. How might God impact marriages 
that are hanging by a thread. Or children who don't yet know that church can be fun. I ask your kids all the time, did you have fun in KCK this morning? Because I know they're getting the gospel. I I know the curriculum. I'm not worried about that. But I'm just wondering, like, are you having a good time? They always say yes. Some kids don't don't know that. What, What might God do in the life of our students who need to be established in their faith before we send them off to college? Or in the lives of adults who, you know, maybe have been in church their whole life, but they don't really understand the gospel because they've never really heard it preached. I, I, I talked to somebody after the first service. I was in church my whole life. I've learned more about the gospel in the last six months being here than I ever had before. Like, I, didn't, I didn't understand this. Or maybe some people who, they do understand the gospel, but it's just kind of in neutral in their life. It's just, their faith is on the bench, and it needs to get in the game. They just need to be active. What might God do in the lives of people that Jesus died to save, that he sent us here to reach, people who would say yes to an invite to attend church if somebody would just ask them. Can I tell you, King's Cross, I am convinced that people need the gospel, and we have it. I'm convinced that people need to be connected in community, and they can find that here. Right? The people who are close to they need us to be living our lives on mission. And so here's my challenge for us, if you would be willing to consider it. You are here for service number 500. Would you be willing to commit to helping us reach person number 500? Would you be willing to help us reach life number 500? Marriage, family, student, number 500. Because those numbers represent people. Like, what might God do if you were just committed, if we, I'm in it with you, were just committed to reaching out and inviting one person? If everybody at King's Cross invited one person, we would blow by that number. But we would have to add more services. If just in the next 12 months, if you reached out to one person, one family, one neighbor, one person in your class or on your team that doesn't have a church home yet, and by this time next year, this was their church home, what might that look like? How might God impact their life through your invite? Like... (laughs) What treasures might we lay up in heaven? Because we say, like right above the coffee, there's that little chalkboard that says people are the mission. We believe that. that our mission is not to have services and, and you know, just to keep running service after service. After. I, don't, I don't want us to ever be content with seeing services happen. What we want to pray for and long for and work towards together is to see life change happen. That's what we're after. Are you with me on that? I, I, this is my burden. It's not, it's not, I want to celebrate what God has done. Yes and amen. He has been so faithful, so faithful to us. What I'm stirred up about is what he's going to do. Who are we going to, who, who's going to be here that we don't even know yet? And their lives are going to be impacted. You're going to hear some testimonies about that before you leave this morning. But um, let's, can we just stop and pray and ask God, just give that to him 
if you might dream and imagine and pray along with me for what he might do by this time next year. Let's pray together about it. Father, you have been so faithful. So faithful. You have sheltered us in three different places. You have provided for us miraculously to establish us here. We have seen dozens and dozens of lives change radically. And we are confident that you will be faithful in the future. We know that. You are unchanging. And so, by faith, we walk into the future knowing that you are already there. You're already being faithful. You already know the plans you have for us. Would you help us to be faithful? Would you bend our hearts towards your heart? Would you give us spiritual eyes to see the people around us the way you see them? Would you give us just the boldness and the courage to get out of our way and reach out to people who don't have a church home? This place means so much to us. We love being here. Would you, would you just lay on our heart other people who would love being here too? So that when a crisis arises or when there's a reason to rejoice, they have people so that they can grow in the gospel and understand its impact in every sphere of their life. This is what we want to see, not so we can brag about us, but so we can brag about you and what it is that you're doing in our world, in our community, in our church, in our life. Um, so we open our hands, we give these things to you. Would you prompt us and remind us by your spirit um, that we might rejoice to see people's lives being changed? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Um, well, some of you were around when we started King's Cross, um, but I, I bet if we went around the room, everybody's been a part of starting something new. You, you've moved into a new house, you've started a new job, you know, you've made new friends. Everybody has been a part of starting something new, and you know that there is this initial excitement. Uh, there's a momentum and a unity and an energy that goes along with that because everybody loves being a part of something new until they don't. <laughs> and things can get messy. You find out that your new coworkers aren't as great as what you hoped they would be when you took the job, right? And they just keep microwaving fish for lunch, and it's like this could be better. And there's some things that didn't show up in the home inspection. And now there's some things that you were really excited, but now you're, you know, you're caught off guard a little bit and you're excited to start your book club, but then next month attendance drops 50% and it keeps dropping after that. And you get a little discouraged and people don't read. And it's like, you know, you start your own business and you find out that's way harder than having a job working for somebody else at their business, right? And it get, new schools have issues. New churches have issues, right? That you get this initial honeymoon period, but then new becomes normal. And what used to be energizing becomes draining, and momentum becomes messy. Because people are messy. And the world is messy. And life sometimes is just messy. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 15. 
It's been almost 20 years since Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection and the Holy Spirit began to indwell all believers. We talked about that last week from Acts 1 and 2. And the initial excitement and momentum, the early surge of unity and missional alignment in the church, that had worked. The church had grown. Local churches were being planted far away from Jerusalem. You had scattered believers and missionary teams who were taking the gospel farther and farther and farther out from Judea. But things were getting messy. And if you've been reading along in your devotional plan, you know that the organic nature of the church needed a little more formal organization. We saw that in Acts chapter 6. Persecution broke out against Christians in Acts 7 and 8. New leaders who were not part of the initial movement began to emerge and to step forward in Acts 9. And then perhaps the messiest possible thing that could happen began to happen. People who were far from God started getting saved. And the crazy thing is, they weren't all Jewish. And that made things get messy. And two questions began to rise to the top and, and to consume the thoughts of this new Jesus movement. They come to a head in Acts chapter 15 at an assembly of what we would eventually call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. They're going to address these two primary questions that come up. Let's look at it together. Acts 15, we'll just start with verse 1. So some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and this is what they were teaching, Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the first question that they're asking. How do you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Do you have to become Jewish first? That's the first step in becoming a Christian. Like, what do you have to do in order to be saved? How do you become a Christian? A Christian, and this will stun you because surely nobody has this issue today, but not everyone agreed on the answer. So look at verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, which I love. I just love Luke's being so kind there, isn't he? No small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, Paul and Barnabas are key guys in the church in Antioch. They are not like JV ministry guys stuck in some leadership pipeline and somebody's just looking for something for them to do. They are the guys at the church at Antioch, and they're being sent to meet with the guys at the church at Jerusalem, the apostles and the early elders in the life of the church. And the question that they're going up when it says, you know, this, it's not a small secondary question that they're not going up to get permission to recarpet the sanctuary. Okay. It's a foundational question for the church. How do you become a Christian? Continue with verse three. So being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, so this is not trouble from the outside, 
some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. That's the first question. How do you become a Christian? And to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's the second question. How do you live like a Christian? Once you're in, once you've become one, then what? How do we, how do they, how do you live like a Christian? Now, two clarifications just so we're all on the same page because it's important that you understand the, the nature of these questions. First, when they speak of the custom of Moses in verse 1 and then the law of Moses in verse 5, they are not talking about the moral law. Okay, it's not the Ten Commandments. Everybody agreed that Gentile converts shouldn't murder, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't worship other gods. Like Nobody's arguing about that. Everybody understands the moral law uh, stands for everybody. What they're referring to are the ceremonial laws, or what we've come to call the ceremonial laws. Things like what can we eat and, and when and how. How are we supposed to dress? Who can we marry? What purification rights do we have to go through in order to make ourselves presentable to go up to the temple and make sacrifices or participate in prayer and worship there so they're not questions of ethics it's questions of culture you with me only my family okay thank you girls I'm, okay you with me Okay, so for 1,500 years, they'd had these ceremonial laws that God had given to Israel in its early formation that were designed to make it distinct from the other nations who were around Israel, kind of in the general Canaan area. So that, that's the, the laws that they're talking about. Second clarification, when they refer to the Gentiles, it's important to know who they mean. So there had always been provisions for non-ethnic Jews, people who were not ethnically descended from Abraham, there had always been provisions for them to convert to Judaism. In the Old Testament, there, there's a bunch of, we've looked at this in our study of the story. In the New Testament, those converts were often referred to as God-fearers. And there were certain rituals, including circumcision and a type of ritual baptism, that went along with that conversion into Judaism. So what we see as we're reading through Acts together in our devotional plan this week is that the Apostle Paul goes out, he starts preaching. His first stop is always in the local synagogue of whatever town he's in. And what he does is he preaches Jesus as the long-awaited Old Testament Messiah. And he's preaching to ethnic Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And those Gentile God-fearers when they spiritually converted to Judaism, also culturally converted to Judaism. They began to keep all of these ceremonial and cultural laws. They lived like Jews. But what happens is Paul gets kicked out of the synagogues. And very quickly, he, he'll preach anywhere. He'll preach in the street. He'll go like where, where, at people's houses. And so Paul's going to preach the gospel. He begins preaching to previously unconverted Gentiles. And when they come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they're having a spiritual conversion without the cultural conversion. And the gap between them and ethnic Jews is massive. So what happens is many of these 
ethnic Jewish Christians begin to say, it's great that you're worshiping our Messiah, but if you're going to worship our Messiah, you have to worship him like us. You have to worship him as a Jew. So step number one, if you're male, you get circumcised. That's how you become a Christian. Step number two, submit to the ceremonial laws. That's how you live like a Christian. Oh, by the way, there are 613 of them. Circumcision is just one. So there's that plus the other 612 of the way that you have to live. How do you become a Christian? How do you live like a Christian? These are the questions they're asking. And I got to say, they're good questions. Fair? We get the answers in verses 6 to 35. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he reminds everybody who's at the council, Look, you know and you already agree that God intended for the Gentiles to come to salvation. Because everybody there agrees that he sent me to preach to them. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so he says, look, we, we all agree that these Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, and they've received him the same way that we did, by faith. They were saved just the same way we were by faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, guys, we were born and raised Jewish. And we believe that the way that we were saved is by grace through that faith. Because we know that we've all broken the law, and yet God, by his grace, has saved us. Surely the Gentiles become Christians the same way we did, by grace, through faith. In verse 12, Barnabas and Paul stand up. They give testimony and evidence of the Gentiles having received the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 13 to 18, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and the first among equals as an elder in the church in Jerusalem, he reminds the council that this had been taught about and prophesied about by the Old Testament prophet Amos, that God's plan of salvation always included the Gentiles. This was not something new that Peter and Paul were making up. He says, guys, we've known about this. The prophets said this hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And then he has this mic drop moment in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I really like the ESV translation of this verse. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James's argument carries some weight. James is the half-brother of Jesus Mary and Joseph were his biological fathers. Mary was Jesus' biological mother. And let me tell you what, you come to a place where you begin to worship your sibling as God, people tune in. 
right? I've got a sibling. I don't worship her. And I don't know how good some of y'all's siblings were, but I can tell you I've got three daughters. They're not worshiping each other. For James to be converted, when he spoke up, people listened. That's why he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says, we don't need to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the answer to this first question, how do you become a Christian, where they arrive is Christians should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. James, it's just really simple. We don't need to have a big, long discussion about this. Let's don't make it difficult for people to turn to God. That's why we don't require circumcision to be a member of King's Cross or any other surgery. Right? We're surgery free. Right? If you want to come to starting point, there's not a surgery section. Right? And I think that we're pretty clear that the only thing required for you to be saved is that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ alone. We don't preach or teach or believe in Jesus plus anything else. It is faith alone by God's grace. That's how you're saved. But I'll be honest with you. I don't think that the first century Christians were the only ones who sometimes conflated their cultural distinctions with spiritual distinctions. I don't think they were the only ones who kind of meshed those two sometimes and and they overlapped a little bit. Because I think if we're not careful, we can slip into that same pattern. If we're not careful, we can send unintentional messages or sadly sometimes quite intentional messages messages that make it difficult for people to turn to God. What do I mean? Let me give you some examples. There are some Christians who firmly believe that anyone who genuinely loves Jesus will vote like them. And that can make it hard for people to turn to God because they feel like, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, that means I have to be a Democrat. If I'm going to be a Christian, that means I have to be a Republican. And so my spiritual conversion requires some type of political conversion. It makes it difficult. Some Christians are convinced that to follow Jesus means you have to forsake all forms of alcohol consumption for the rest of your life. And that can make it difficult for some people to turn to God because they think, well, if I become a Christian, I can never have a robust Cabernet with my steak ever again. And, and it, it becomes a stumbling block for some people. And so I think it's important if you're already a Christian, and I know not everyone in the room is yet, but if you're already a Christian, it's important for us to just know and be aware of that sometimes we can make it difficult for people to turn to God. If we act all offended, like our sensitive little Christian ears can't believe we heard a curse word, and it makes people think like, well, if you're going to become a Christian, you know, first you have to talk like this. Or sometimes we, we speak or we post or we act as if same-sex attraction is the unforgivable sin. But we'll quietly turn the other way to sex before marriage because, you know, that's just our kids and that's just the way people are. They're, it makes it difficult for people when we pick and choose which sins we think are particularly offensive. If we quietly judge tattoos, well, you know, he should really cover that up. He's going to come into church. Or piercings. God, that's just, you know, style of dress. Or insert whatever cultural thing trips you up. If we make, if we raise those issues to the level of being gospel issues, 
it can make it difficult for people to turn to God. And we could go around the room. Everybody, if we were to ask you, everybody has some experience where you've run into some unspoken, unbiblical, cultural expectation that was intentionally or unintentionally communicated to you that you know, man, if other people had to do that, that would make it difficult for them. It might have made it difficult for some of you to come to faith in Christ. Because what we can say to people is, if you're going to become a follower of Jesus, you have to follow this too. You have to convert to this cultural expectation too in order for you to come to Jesus. So I think about this all the time in relation to our church. Because I know that the gospel is offensive. I, there's no, I don't have any way around that. And so the gospel does not say you're a bad person that needs to be a good person. It says you're a dead person who needs to be made alive. The gospel does not say, you know, you've made some mistakes. The gospel says you have sinned against a holy God. And for all of eternity, you will be separated from him because the just punishment for your sin is death in every way imaginable for all eternity. And there is nothing you can do on your own to reconcile yourself to God. But the gospel also says there is one, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, who came and lived a perfect life and died in your place for your sins so that by God's grace through your faith, you can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to him. You can inherit eternal life. Friends, that is offensive. Now, if you grew up in church, it may not be offensive to you. But when I talk about us reaching people who are close to us but far from God, some of the people that you invite are going to get their toes stepped on. But we want them to be stepped on by the gospel, not other things. It's hard to get to a place where you believe what I just... It's hard to get to a place where you believe that God the Son took on flesh, lived on earth, died, was raised again, ascended to heaven, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. That's hard. But let's not make it any harder than it is to turn to God. That's how come when it comes to our church, why Josh and I introduce ourselves every week. I just assume you're going to be bringing people and they don't know me. So I tell them who I am. It just lowers a little bit of a bar. Who's this dude that's up there? That's why I try. I don't do this every week. I try as best as I can to address guests and non-believers every week because I know that you're here. And I want you to know that you're welcome here. We expect guests. We know that there are non-believers here. You're welcome. That's why we try our best to make sure the building is clean and safe and easy to navigate. That's why we want to make sure KCK is safe. We do background checks to try to make check-in a really easy process. So we don't want you stumbling and getting frustrated trying to check your kids into KCK. That's why we put Bible verses and sermon notes and song lyrics on the screen. Because not everybody has a Bible. Not everybody knows these songs. And so we want to try to make it easier for people to turn to God. We want to make it easy for people to get connected. That's why we put up, you know, we have uh, announcement slides before the service. Some of y'all don't know that. You've never been here before service. Um, there's announcement slides. <laughs> so we put announcement slides up, and we put announcements in the bulletin, and we put announcements on the website, and we send out an email. Like, we're trying to make it easy. We're trying our best to remove every barrier between the parking lot and Jesus because coming to faith is hard enough, and Christians shouldn't make it difficult 
for people to turn to God. How do you become a Christian? Just agree with God that you're a sinner. Repent of that sin and place your faith, not in your goodness, not in your ability to do better, but in Christ and what he has done on your behalf. He's done everything necessary for your salvation. That's it. That's hard enough. We don't want to make it difficult for people to turn to God. The second question they're asking is, okay, well then how do you live like a Christian? And the answer that they're going to give to that question is that Christians should not make it difficult for people to fellowship with them. So don't make it difficult for people to turn to God. And then once you do turn to God, don't make it difficult for people to fellowship with you as a Christian. James's argument's going to win the day. And the Jerusalem council decides, they come to an agreement, they decide to send a letter back to these Gentile churches so that everybody can get the word about what it is that the council has decided. And here's what that letter says. It starts in Acts 15.23. The letter says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. That's their, you know, hey, dash, and then the text starts, right? Since we've heard that some persons who have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Can't trust what Paul and Barnabas said because the disagreement, right? So they sent some guys from Jerusalem back with Paul and Barnabas in addition to the letter, like it's a double seal. This is what we said. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, that means from eating meat that still has the blood in it, and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. That's it. Just keep yourself from these things. Now, it might sound like a strange list to you, but to them, it, it didn't sound strange. It made sense. The dietary laws of the Jews, again, those you know, mosaic ceremonial laws are very, very strict as were their, their regulations about who could marry whom based on different things. So when he says sexual immorality, they're not talking about adultery and fornication, all this. Everybody agreed those things were wrong. They're talking about inside the bounds of these ceremonial laws. Those things were very strict. And culturally, at the time, sharing a meal with somebody was a big deal. It signified certain things. It communicated something about you and that person. That's why people got so angry at Jesus. He kept eating with sinners. Like, what are you doing? And this is why it was such a, because he, it, they felt like he's tacitly condoning their lifestyle because he shared a table with them. It was like casual business lunch that that didn't exist. And so there's a problem then when you combine these two because those very strict cultural norms that the Jews had are so ingrained in their culture that they found it nearly impossible to share a table with the Gentiles who didn't abide by those things. It, it was just, it was a non-starter for them. It's like if somebody says to you after church, hey, why don't you come over tonight? Um, we're going to barbecue some dogs and grill some horse fillets, right? And you're like, I'm busy, man. Sorry, 
oh, there's a member meeting I got. I'm not, you know, that's right. There's just something that's like, well, I don't mind an animal roaming around a field if it's a cow, but if it's roaming around a field, it's a horse, I'm out, right? Why? You don't know why. It just is. Yes, and you're not going. <laughs> we don't even need to take a poll. It's just hard for them. So what the Jerusalem Council is saying is, look, you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. That's legalism, and we're asking our Jewish brothers and sisters to set that aside. But once you have become a Christian, could you set aside some of your freedoms and some of your personal preferences so it's not hard for our Jewish brothers and sisters to fellowship with you? Could we do that? We're going to ask them to set aside their legalism. Could you lay aside some of your freedom? They're saying, don't you see Christians shouldn't make it hard shouldn't make it difficult for other people to fellowship with them. In Acts 31, or 1531, it says, when the letter reached these new Gentile Christians, it says they read it and they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Well, I guess so. The bar just went from circumcision to eating well-done steak. Ah, <laughs> uh, we're good. That's an encouragement, right? I can, deal, I can deal with not having blood in my meat. No worries. Of course they would do that. So here's how I would say it. Love people enough not to do or say things that you know will offend them. Don't make it difficult for people to fellowship with you. Like, why would you drink around an alcoholic. Why? They say, well, I, it's not a problem for me. That's okay, but it's hard for them. So if you have them over to their house for dinner, don't serve wine. What are you doing? Like, why would you invite your Muslim neighbors over and grill pork chops? They're not going to want to eat that. Don't make it difficult for them to fellowship with you. You can just cook something else. If you have your community group over for movie night, why would you pick an R-rated movie? Well, why would you do that? You're just making it difficult for people to fellowship with you. You can lay aside some of those things. You say, I'm free in Christ. This doesn't bind my conscience. Okay, fine. Praise the Lord for that. But if it makes it difficult for them, why don't you just not do that? Christians shouldn't make it difficult for people to fellowship with them. Surely, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, Surely that included laying aside personal preferences for the sake of loving others. We say, hey, we don't want to make it difficult for you to love God. How about you don't make it difficult for us to love one another? This is basically what the Jerusalem Council is saying. I can remember uh, years ago now, I was in northern India doing some training with some church planters and their wives and pastors and their wives, and there was a small team of us over there, and we would worship together and, and eat together and fellowship together. But when we taught, they asked us if the men and the women could break up into different rooms. Well, of course, that's fine because that was their custom. We didn't argue with them about whether or not that was necessary. and It's good for everybody to hear. No, we just said, of course we'll do that. We don't need to make it difficult for you. You're trying to come and learn from us so you can go plant churches in places where people never heard the name of Jesus. No problem, we can go to separate rooms. It's not a gospel issue, that was a culture issue. And of course we can accommodate that because we're Christians and Christians shouldn't make it difficult for people to fellowship with them. Say, so, well, 
Chip, I think if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you're saying that churches shouldn't let their cultural norms become a barrier to the gospel, and Christians shouldn't let their personal preferences become a barrier to fellowship and relationships. That's what the Jerusalem Council is saying. That's Acts 15. Christians should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. And once they have turned to God, they shouldn't make it difficult for people to fellowship with them. We love God and we love one another. This is what the church does. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you've made it possible for us to fellowship with you by your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. We come to you in his name and ask for your help that our, our hearts might be full and our hands might be open for those who perhaps background or, or culture is different than ours. But we desperately want them to turn to you. And so we want to lay aside everything that's not the gospel. We want to stand firm on your word. We won't compromise it no matter how offensive it is. But we don't want people to be offended by us. Would you help us as a church and as individuals to remember that? Would you help us to love one another well so that if there's something that might prevent others from fellowshipping with us, we might lay that aside? Because our relationships matter more to us than our preferences and our habits and our culture. We love you. We love one another. Would you help us to remember that? In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.